Bitcoiners, welcome back to another episode of FedWatch. It's CK. I am here with Ansel, and we have Greg Foss back on the show. Greg, I think this is your third appearance. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Greg, um, your first article for Bitcoin Magazine was a very timely one about a month ago, and you really teased out what's happening with Evergrande and kind of like how that fits into the the, the grander a uh, picture of, you know, the high yield markets and how debt works. Um, this podcast, we're going to tease that out as well as we can even chat a little bit about the piece that you dropped just last week um, on Bitcoin Magazine as well. You have been, you've been churning out the knowledge. So it's, it's awesome to see you get onto the mag. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I want to kick it back to, uh, to Ansel, maybe to just uh, talk about, you know, his, maybe just, you know, his thoughts on, on the article and, And then maybe we can dive into the specifics with you. Sounds great. Well, I always appreciate, uh, Greg, your takes, your no-nonsense takes, uh, your math-based takes, your, uh, you know, it's just facts, 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 and this is my conclusion. And I think that's great. Um, I I love this article. Um, I I didn't uh, get a chance to see the first one, but this most recent one that uh, that, uh, this is, episode is about, uh, you start off by comparing the different sizes of Evergrande versus um, Lehman, because that was a very popular comparison. But then you also go further and you compare it to other size. Uh, these defaults have happened uh, in recent memory. So can you um, walk us through where you were putting Evergrande in the comparison of all of these other defaults? Certainly. Um, what we need to remember about Evergrande, and let's assume that the numbers that we are being uh, given are correct, which uh, there's always that uh, sensitivity that there's uh, some shadowy uh, results and within the shadow banking system even. But uh, Evergrande is a $300 billion uh, liability, uh, of which $200 billion are to liabilities to homeowners who basically prepay. And now that's a huge number, uh, but it's, you can appreciate that that would be largely contained within the uh, Chinese population. Uh, the balance, which is 90 to 100 billion, is a combination of bank debt and, uh, and publicly traded debt, of which some of that debt has, has been issued to offshore you know, reference U.S. high yield type buyers. Uh, so in context of a $300 billion total liabilities of which $100 billion really at max has uh, potential to flow outside of China, if you just line that balance sheet debt, this is what we call on balance sheet debt up against Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers was $600 billion and it was 10 years earlier. And the biggest thing about Lehman wasn't the publicly traded on balance sheet debt. It was the off balance sheet liabilities 
they included things like credit default swaps and all the derivatives that were uh, uh, counterparty risk to the financial system itself. So what does that mean? Uh, Lehman Brothers and all the derivative contracts in on Wall Street uh, typically net out, okay? Um, meaning you get these quadrillion, the notional size of uh, the derivatives market in the US predominantly, if global financial markets, but predominantly the US is massive. But all these contracts net out because there's counterparties. And let's say in the case of the big uh, uh, great, the global financial crisis in 2007, eight and nine, there were rumors, for example, that if AIG was allowed to fail, that Goldman Sachs was done as well because Goldman had gone to AIG and purchased so many con uh, so much insurance from AIG to offset hedge uh, offset risk they had on their own uh, businesses as well as risks that they had uh, brokered for clients. If AIG failed, Goldman Sachs was on the hook. And they certainly didn't have enough capital to cover all these, excuse me, all these liabilities. So that off balance sheet was really the big uh, contagion risk in the great financial crisis. And I'll just add a, another uh, example. And I, I was actually in this position. Imagine Greg Foss sees that Lehman Brothers is uh, concerning. And whether I was trying to hedge something directly or let's just say I was speculating and I wanted to own insurance on Lehman Brothers, I went out and bought that insurance from Bear Stearns. And then all of a sudden, you see Bear Stearns cascading downwards as well. And you're like, gosh, I have this insurance company, but I'm not this insurance contract, but I'm not as sure the insurance company will be around to honor that contract. So then you run out and try and buy insurance on your insurance provider to hedge your risk that started with Lehman Brothers. Do you understand? So this is what the contagion all uh, the dominoes fall. That's the great financial crisis 2008-2009. This one, the off-balance sheet liabilities at Evergrande, according to Goldman Sachs, are 1 trillion yuan, but that's 150 billion US dollars. It's not insignificant, but it's not Lehman-esque. Okay. And what it means is largely, in my opinion, the contagion is visible. We're seeing it right now in things like credit default swap on China. But so far, it's not leaking really hard into the rest of the markets. And that's key because that can change. But you're definitely seeing other property developers in China getting absolutely demolished. They're quoting their high yield markets as yielding like 18 or 22% right now. I, I need to caution people. It's not a high yield market. It's called a distressed market. And yields in a distressed market don't make sense. And I could walk you through why that is. But very simply, remember, you don't always buy a bond at 25 cents on the dollar, which is the price that uh, Evergrande debt is trading at because you think you're going to get 100 cents on the dollar back. You can buy it at 25 cents on the dollar, even if you think you're going to get 40 cents on the dollar back. Because 15 cents on a 25 cent investment profit 
is still a pretty good return, right? Even though the price only goes from 25 to 40. Well, the yield to maturity calculation at 25 cents actually assumes you're getting something back to 100 cents on the dollar. So this is where the math gets a little tricky. I'll just say this, it is concerning, but it's not catastrophic in my opinion at this point. Well, my the way I think of contagion, uh, I kind of break it into two pieces and you'll please tell me if this makes sense. Um, I think of it in a financial aspect and like an asset aspect. So if I have CDS with a bunch of different people and then one of the counterparties start going under, I consider that like a, a financial contagion. But then I also think of in the case of Evergrande, uh, if they have to liquidate their assets. And so they start liquidating their land, they liquid they liquidate their apartments or whatever their, their projects that they're building that crashes the value. And then all of the other real estate developers in the country, their values at their asset values go down and puts them now in the red as well. And so that's, I kind of think of it in two different um, segments of the economy, a financial contagion and a asset price contagion. Uh, what do you think of that idea? Yeah, I think it's really a great way to look at it. Um, let's just take that a little bit further. Uh, a asset contagion will eventually bleed into the financial reality. Uh, think of the consumer confidence of all these Chinese, and it's rumored that there's a million, over a million Chinese families that have been impacted by the, the uh, collapse in the Evergrande uh, empire because they've advanced money for a house that may never be completed right and when we say houses i guess we got to be clear it's mostly apartments but i think they had a hundred projects oh hold on now it could it's out, outrageous amount of projects all around the whole country in every single province um and that is real life losses uh, you know if 200 million excuse me 200 billion evaporate or is severely um, uh, uh, distressed. That has a that has a that leaks into the real economies too, right, Ansel? I mean, you know, these guys, yeah. these people aren't going to go out and be that uh, consumer oriented. They're, you know, lots of value in in uh, in China is stored in the in the real estate market. So the knock on effect goes from being asset-based where you're seeing all the property developers and land prices uh, being substantially um, devalued, that'll leak into the real economy as well and will become a financial concern. But I, I agree with the way you, you originally uh, lay it out. It'll, it'll, it'll become more uh, uh, continuous going forward but it's not immediate. So I like the way you looked at it. Cool. Cool. Okay. Now the CDS market you did in this article uh, laid out like how the spreads are starting to look more like closer to junk, right? Correct. And, and that's yeah. pretty interesting because it's gotten even worse since then. Right. Um, they are uh, they're You know, guys are showing it gapping out. Now the, the, the interesting thing is we have to understand a lot of people will use words like gapping out and say, oh my gosh, the spread has gone from 25 basis points to 40 basis points, which is true. And now it's up around 60 basis points. The reality is though, still 60 basis points 
on a sovereign nation implies a very low probability of default. It's not a zero probability, obviously, and as the spread increases, that the implied probability of default increases as well. And that's, you know, that seems pretty logical, but is still minuscule. So in the context of countries, though, China is definitely trading much more like a triple B credit. And the next notch below triple B is the South Africans of the world and the true junk borrowers in the sovereign space. So not predicting it, but the trend is your friend and the trend is wider spreads in China pointing towards a potential junk rated borrower. And that gets into one of the things I've talked about recently too, is how this uh, international contagion, not just uh, within the domestic market in China, but um, any country that is more geared towards import, export and international trade, like say a Germany, which is highly dependent on trade with China, um, this could be contagion in that respect. And you touch on this in the article um, talking about the, uh, I guess what we, what did you, I didn't write it down now, it's a sovereign debt contagion or something like that. And then also the international investors in China, this can also affect them coming in there. So can you talk about the kind of the international yeah, contagion? quite simple, right? Look, um, China is the sec world's second largest economy. There's some supply chain issues. Uh, it's like anything, you know, in a default, I'm not predicting it, but imagine if there is a default in a country, it's no different than a default of a business. You have trade claims. You have people that were counting on supplies coming out of China that you've already paid for, but you haven't received the product. So all of this stuff has knock on effects. There's no question. Um, you know, the world's second largest economy is obviously quite important. And uh, all I'm trying to say is imagine if the second largest borrow, uh, excuse me, the second largest economy in the world is close to being defined as a junk rated borrower. That, 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 that carries a lot of, you know, oh my gosh. And to a lot of people, are you kidding me? Do you know what that means? And they don't actually know what it means. <laughs> it just means, yeah, it's, you know, more risky than uh, the higher rated sovereigns. But at the end of the day, there's negative connotations. There's trickle down effects and it will reverberate through the global economy, in my opinion, not quickly, but over time. Well, we're kind of already seeing, obviously, all the supply chain issues that are going on. Um, and I guess one of the parts of my thesis is that the, the, these defaults that we're seeing in China, which Evergrande isn't the first. I mean, they had been picking up speed over there in China, but Evergrande is just like this, the biggest one yet. Correct. Um, Correct. And so I think that we, we see these supply chain issues and then people are talking about inflation because of supply chains uh, backing up. Now we have higher prices, but if you trace it back, it all comes down to default, which is a deflationary pressure. So can you talk about supply chains and possibly what you um, see in that regard? No, because I don't know enough about them to, to, to comment, you know, guys that would, they would, well, here's my daily shout out to Dylan LeClaire. Uh, Matt, perhaps he could uh, he could jump in here. And uh, uh, Jeff Booth would be a guy that would be much better at talking about this stuff than I am. Uh, yes, it makes sense. 
supply chain issues are as much about logistics, though, as they are about uh, and, and logistics that uh, get delayed for operational issues rather than credit issues. Um, I'll just say that, yes, they're all linked. And in an era of, you know, it, it seems like yesterday, I, I graduated from university in 1988 when just in time uh, manufacturing was the big buzzword, right? Oh, we're doing just in time and three days of inventory is all we're carrying. And, you know, the Japanese, I don't even remember what it's called. It started with a K, some system that uh, is so brilliant that you're just using just in time. That's, that's the reality of the world, the globalized economy. Uh, there are issues that perhaps some of these supply chains have become too thin. Uh, the case of uh, semiconductors is pretty simple to explain, right? And then you take a step back and you're like, well, if that's the case for the automobile industry and semiconductors, it's a little dangerous perhaps for military concerns and everything. So I'm no expert. If, if I can dodge this question a little bit, I, I, I need to because uh, I, I certainly am not uh, qualified to comment much more than what I just did. All right, Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about our newest sponsor. This show is brought to you by Ledin.io. I have been super, super impressed with the guys over at Ledin. I've actually known the co-founders, Adam and Mauricio, for a very long time. I've had the pleasure to watch them build Ledin up from a tiny, tiny startup to now a super impressive institutional grade Bitcoin and crypto lender. Y'all, I'm so impressed with these guys. They are offering some of the best rates out there. I don't think anyone even comes close to touching them. You can get 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin that you deposit into Ledin interest accounts, and you can get 8.5% US on USDC deposits. I mean, I know all the competitors. They're not even close. If you're going to put your crypto and your Bitcoin into an interest account, Ledin is by far the best. And on top of that, like I said, these guys are hardcore Bitcoiners and they know the products and the services that Bitcoiners want and appreciate. They came up with B2X. It allows you to put your Bitcoin in, they leverage it up, and you can, with one click of the mouse, get twice the exposure to Bitcoin. So if you're super bullish, Ledin has you covered with a super, super easy way to get leverage with B2X. And then on top of that, they know that Bitcoiners care about your reserves. They know that Bitcoiners don't like under-reserved and not full-reserved financial institutions. So they are pushing the frontier in transparency in the digital asset lending space. And they are the first digital asset lender to do a full proof of reserves and proof of attestation through a Mariano LLC, a public accounting firm. So the letting guys, they know what Bitcoiners like. They are legit. I encourage you guys to check them out. Do your own research and go to ledin.io. That is L-E-D-N.io and learn more. So Greg, I, I want to pivot it back to something which you are very, very qualified to talk about, which is, you know, kind of viewing Bitcoin from a uh, different valuation perspective and the perspective of debt and sovereign debt. You were just talking about how China is starting to look a little bit like South Africa in terms of their credit rating and the spreads um, on their on their debt. Um, you know, let's let's pivot this over to like, what does this mean for Bitcoin, right? And as you know, what you're saying is math that enforces the devaluation and the breakdown of of all of these nation states' uh, credit worthiness. Um, why don't you just talk about your thesis there? Sure. Um, so this very simply there's uh, south africa is part of what they call the fragile five which are substantially 
uh, substantial global e economies that are ranked below investment grade. Now, the funny thing is, right, we need to qualify what does that mean below investment grade. It's a subjective terminology that's been ingrained in our uh, lexicon by the credit rating agencies without even considering price. And this has been my big, as a high yield and junk bond trader, I, I was always like, well, how do you define something as being a junk bond without considering what the price is? There's always a price that'll make a non-investment grade or a junk credit, an investment grade credit, right? Meaning if someone gives you that debt for zero, the price is zero and you get that debt for free, well, I'd say that's a pretty darn good investment, right? I'm not outlaying any money and I have all the upside. That's an extreme, but it's always good to take things to an extreme. What does it mean, CK, that, that I uh, look at Bitcoin as an intrinsic valuation of a basket of sovereign credits? Very simply, you can take the credit default swap spread, the CDS spread, of the top G20 nations and multiply that spread by their funded and unfunded obligations. And I did it at the beginning of, uh, I think it was around January. And it's, it's a, not a painful calculation, but it's, you know, there's subjectivity to it. But at the end of the day, I'm going to get to this because I just updated my analysis recently with the most recent article that I dropped in Bitcoin Magazine about a week ago. But when I did it for G20 nations, taking the CDS spread multiplied by their funded and unfunded obligations, I came up with a valuation, uh, what I termed a, an intrinsic valuation of Bitcoin of 150,000 US dollars today, which was back in January, based on the credit default swap spreads and the outstanding obligations. Now, what's, what happens over time? Well, those spreads, are volatile. Therefore, the intrinsic value can change because a CDS spread that goes from 10 basis points to 20 basis points means that country is more risky. Multiply that by its out outstanding funded and unfunded obligations, the intrinsic value of Bitcoin should increase. The other way that the intrinsic value of Bitcoin increases is that the amount of debt just keeps increasing in the world, right? So there's a continuous, in my opinion, underlying intrinsic value of Bitcoin that's just going to expand. And then you get the specific country events, like in the case of China, where their spread has gone from 30 basis points to 60 basis points. That's meaningful. That's meaningful in the eyes of the market and therefore should be meaningful in the eyes of Bitcoin holders as the intrinsic value should increase. And this is the key I'm going to leave you guys with. Bitcoin, and actually, I'm having a lot of trouble getting this through to the market, but I think we're succeeding. Bitcoin is the perfect long volatility position. It's essentially insurance. And when you're short credit, which I believe Bitcoin is a short credit trade, the credit being the sovereign nations, you're long volatility. And that's a beautiful thing, Christian, because, and Ansel, because all your other assets are predominantly short volatility trades. Equities, short vol. Credit, being long credit, you're short vol. Humans are short vol biased by the markets. And what happens when markets melt down, 
volatility explodes and people are running for their insurance policies, well, Bitcoin's already that policy. And I think it's going to take time for the world to really understand the beauty of Bitcoin as being a long vol position. And I'm not going to say, you know, a, a, a recent uh, two weeks or three weeks, you cannot base a thesis on this, but it's interesting the way that Bitcoin has decoupled from the traditional risk off mentality, right? And that's how it should, in my opinion. It's a long ball posi uh, position that should decouple from the risk off mentality that, oh, if all markets melt down, Bitcoin's going to melt down with it. Yeah, in the short term it might, but in the long term, people will understand it's insurance. It's my protection. It's beautiful. It's long vol. And most importantly, no counterparty risk. I don't have to worry about buying this insurance from Lehman, excuse me, from Bear Stearns, and it's on Lehman. Bitcoin is the quintessential no counterparty risk long vol trade. That was actually going to be my next question was, uh, would you say that this, this long vol is the same as um, like short counterparties being short counterparty. I like your line of thinking. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, to me, well, uh, let's define counterparty risk in the insurance context. Uh, counterparty risk is your insurance company can't pay your claim. You, you own fire insurance on your house and you're pretty happy that you have insurance. God forbid your house burns down and you go to collect from you know, whoever your insurance provider is. And they're like, oh, sorry, we're out of business, right? Uh, and that's a risk. That's why they have all sorts of credit ratings for uh, insurance companies and uh, et cetera. The Bitcoin as, it certainly is insurance against sovereigns. And ultimately the counterparties live in a sovereign nation. So yeah, I, I can make that connection. Hansel. Excellent. Um, I also was thinking that Bitcoin has recently, I mean, throughout its entire history, the dollar, you know, since 2000 and uh, the 2008 financial crisis, the dollar is actually higher relative to 2008. Uh, and so Bitcoin, if you take a long enough um, moving average, Bitcoin is positively correlated with the dollar. And I would say the dollar is also a, um, a, long vol position wow yes but here's the reality why is the dollar a long vol position well there's two reasons but i'm going to hit the real one in my opinion emerging markets get crushed when the u.s dollar appreciates on a relative basis so an appreciating u.s dollar is probably what's going to cause the Fed not to be able to taper in any meaningful in any meaningful way going forward. All you have to do is look at history. When the U.S. dollar strengthens, emerging markets get crushed. And is it uh, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it is it is the U.S. dollar appreciating because people are running to the safety of the U.S. dollar, or is the U.S. dollar appreciating because let's say monetary policy is favoring an increase, you know, interest rates are increasing. So your risk, excuse me, your interest rate parity trade favors the dollar. Doesn't matter. The truth is the US dollar, yes, can be thought of as a long vol trade until it's not. And what is a, an FX cross rate? It's nothing more than 
one melting ice cube, which is melting at a lower or a less velocity than a, another melting ice cube. All fiats are melting. And so there's, you know, you can say, yeah, I'm running from this, this minor inferno to a, uh, a grass fire that's going to turn into an inferno, but it's not an inferno yet, right? So you just have to be careful, you know, at how you define this. Funniest thing is, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an FX trader and I'm trading the euro against the, the uh, whatever. I'll trade the euro against the lira and all of this cool stuff. And you're like, dude, you're just trading one debasing currency for another and the rate of, de of debasing just happens to be a little different. Gosh, you got to get into something that's not debasing. That's the excitement of Bitcoin. So I, I have a dumb question, Greg. Um, what does the dollar strengthening have anything to do with, uh, do with the, the Fed, you know, doing QE? Because you know, uh, okay. it doesn't so, really, it, I'm unsure how, you know, QE ties into all of that. And maybe it's just like they have to manage expectations and that's why, but economics? yeah. You, you remember in your economics course, I'm sure Ansel will remember this. They called something called interest rate parity, where you basically took the interest rate in a given country. And on a forward basis, you hedged out your exchange rate risk, and it'll tell you what your cross rate is based on a 10-year rate in this country versus a 10-year rate in this other country. Basically, it breaks down like this, Christian, is the higher the interest rate, the more attractive funds are flowing to that country. So therefore, that currency is increasing in value relative to another country that has lower interest rates. Well, what is Fed? What is QE? That's impacting the 10-year US rate. If everything else being equal, the 10-year U.S. rate goes from what it's done, 1% up to 1.6%, that will strengthen the U.S. dollar. If the Fed takes their foot off of the accelerator or taps the brakes on tapering uh, a little more, the 10-year rate should go higher, meaning the U.S. dollar should strengthen, meaning the damage to emerging markets could accelerate. And then the Fed will be like, oh my God, we can't cause the global economy to go into the, into the tubes. So they'll, this is why I say it's going to be very difficult for their, them to taper, in my opinion, in a meaningful way. I think they're very backed into a corner. Uh, wait, so I know Ansel wants to jump in, but so just so, so I can summarize in the most layman way possible, what you're saying is that the dollar is going to appreciate, period, and therefore it will make it very difficult for them to also taper, which will cause the dollar to appreciate more. If they taper, the dollar will, will appreciate more and it will accelerate the, the hurt on emerging markets, correct? Okay. So the hurt is on no matter what, and that will pretty much force them not to taper because that would only make the hurt worse. In my opinion, correct. All right, Ansel, back to you. I just wanted to pick out one line from this article um, where you said that in a debt spiral, the debt won't mature. It will just roll over. It needs and, to. It yeah, needs and, to roll over. That's correct. Yeah, and I, ha I haven't heard it in that concise of a fashion. So can you uh, tease that apart, please? Certainly. So again, the debt 
burden in all countries is expanding uh, to the extent that next year there'll be more debt than this year. That's pure math just because of the interest. Let's not talk about these trillion dollar spending programs. Let's just talk about the fact that the interest burden on the debt is growing faster than the economy can keep up with the interest burden. Therefore, your balloon is expanding. If your balloon's expanding, you need to pay that somehow. So your auctions are getting bigger and bigger. Well, what happens is, again, your, your debt isn't maturing because if your debt was maturing and you were paying it down, the balloon would be, would be contracting. But the balloon is expanding. So the spiral is accelerating, which means the outstanding debt just needs to roll over. You need to turn that, you know, the, it was once a five-year bond and now it's, it's down to 30 days. And when that 30-day bond comes due, the treasury just basically takes it out and says, well, I just raised this much money just to pay for my expanding or my, my legacy debt. That's what I mean. It just rolls over. It goes from, you know, it was a five-year term. It's now a 30-day term. And we're going to kick it out to the 30-year term or the 10-year term again. When that happens in a fluid basis, auctions are successful and everyone's good. What happens if an auction, the bid-to-cover ratio on an option, excuse me, on an auction is not healthy? The guys holding the debt are like, God darn, this auction looks pretty sick. Well, I'm not going to show up to the next auction either. And by the way, what I want to do is in between auctions, I want to start laying off my government risk. If everyone does that, it can turn into a, you know, a cascade of selling. Yeah, one of the things that struck me when in that sentence was that right now, it's bad for debt to mature too because of its use as collateral. So the, these government bonds or bills and treasuries, they have uh, a utility value in the repo market and stuff. And okay. so if you let them mature, that means the supply of your collateral is actually going down, which means your liquidity shrinking, uh, which leads to a dollar shortage. And so um, I thought that was very interesting that the whole goal is not to let it mature, just to continue to roll it over in, or else your collateral is going to shrink. That is a, uh, yes, that is a secondary concern. Uh, that's capitalism. <laughs> you know, you hate to say it, but that's capitalism right there. Where our whole banking system is built on an expanding debt burden. Uh, and it starts with banks only having to hold five to 6% of their loans in equity capital and the other 95%, 94% is depositors money. It's, it's quite a system. It's quite a system. So I guess with that being said, like categorizing that as capitalism, what does Bitcoin create, right? Is that a new type of capitalism? Um, is that just perfect markets? Like how would you categorize that? Because I do think like when it comes to expanding past people who appreciate markets and liberty, we have lost capitalism, right? They think capitalism is bad, corrupt, evil. Crony capitalism is what they see. So like, what would, how would you, you frame that kind of narrative on like the, the beauty of what Bitcoin and, and pure, pure markets could mean for the world? I am going to borrow uh, from Nick Szabo his uh, 
description of Bitcoin as being your savings account and fiat system being your checking account. And I, I always try and point this out. And if I, if I haven't done it in my papers with you guys, I'll do it right here. If I haven't done it already on your program. Listen, I do not want the U.S. currency to fail. I need to be pretty darn clear about that. All right. The U.S. currency needs to survive because everything is based off of the U.S. The US economy. Even though it does have a potential to default, it is still the quintessential base of, it's not risk-free, but it's, it's, it's as close as we've got. But what does Bitcoin bring to the equation? Bitcoin brings a savings account mentality. And what I hope exists is a, is a parallel network where you continue to have your fiat currency functioning with all the debt markets and the capital markets. And then you have your savings account, which is based on Bitcoin. And you don't save your money in fiat because we've seen what happens with that. But by the same token, there's a lot to be said of a, of a system where you don't need to barter. You don't need to trade you know, goods for other goods. You have a currency. And there will be tons of currencies that fail. History has shown that pretty well every fiat will fail eventually. And I think that is going to happen to the US dollar at some point. But I'm not, I'm hoping that doesn't happen in the short term and that we are able to adopt a parallel system where Bitcoin on chain turns to the ability to do lightning, turns to the ability to do layer three Bitcoin over time. And if the fiat currency system does eventually collapse, because there will be more Lebanons, there will be more Argentinas, there will be more Venezuelas. But who's the first G7 nation to default? And I hate to say it, but Canada's leading the pack right now, according to the CDS markets. And I'm Canadian and I'm proud of it. And we're a very lucky country to live right next door to the richest and most powerful country in the world. But damn, our leadership is doing the, they're working as hard as they can to, uh, to be a G7 nation that's on its way to uh, not so good times. Bitcoiners, I am so excited to tell you about the Bitcoin 2022 conference. You guys, Bitcoin 2021 was absolutely a smash hit success. It was over 13,000 Bitcoiners coming together, breaking the barriers on who can come together and celebrate freedom, celebrate Bitcoin, and the energy was absolutely electric. Unfortunately, it was just oversubscribed. There's just people flowing out everywhere. And this year we are learning, we are making the conference bigger and better. We are moving over to the Miami Beach Convention Center, and we are going to be throwing a massive four-day festival for Bitcoin, celebrating Bitcoin, bringing together the greatest minds in Bitcoin and the greatest businesses in Bitcoin. And lastly, the culture of Bitcoin all together. We have a four-day extravaganza planned for you guys for Bitcoin 2022. Uh, day one is going to be industry day. It is a day where you can buy a special ticket in order to uh, just mingle and make business deals happen. Day two and three is going to be a full-blown Bitcoin conference. This is our main conference. This is going to be on April 7th and 8th. And then lastly, we have the Sound Music Festival day four. Imagine going to Coachella but for Bitcoin. 
There's going to be very few talks. It's going to be all about the culture of Bitcoin. It's going to be all about hanging with your fellow plebs. It is going to be an absolutely amazing time. There's going to be Bitcoin musicians, Bitcoin artists, and all your favorite Bitcoiners and just an amazing environment to party and just see it all, soak it all in, and to get people to realize that a Bitcoin world, a world filled with Bitcoin people doing Bitcoin things is the world that they want to live in. That's what Bitcoin 2022 is all about. That is what the Bitcoin conference is all about. That's what Bitcoin Magazine is all about. So it is going to be a celebration of Bitcoin, the Bitcoiners, and this amazing movement that is going to make the world a better place. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Learn more about the Bitcoin conference. Learn more about all the amazing things that are happening in Miami around the Bitcoin conference and buy your tickets. And guess what? If you buy your bit tickets with Bitcoin, you save $100 on all the tickets and $1,000 on the whale pass. So if you want the VIP pass, the, the big kahuna, if you buy with Bitcoin, you save $1,000. That's a lot of stats. So go and do it right now today. Don't wait. Prices are only going up. This is going to be a can't miss event. Germany's up there too. So Germany, but still, again, you got to, in context, Germany's still far bigger than Canada. Germany is the, uh, is leading the European Union in terms of its uh, ability to keep that whole uh, house of cards together. So yeah, that's risky. Uh, but, you know, the European Central Bank is way bigger than the Bank of Canada. There's certainly more uh, international implications of uh uh, of trade and everything amongst that block of uh, uh, that trading block. Uh, Canada, look, what are we? Geographically, we're about 100 kilometers wide or 60 miles wide and about 3,000 miles long. We're a ribbon. Did you know that 90% of the Canadian population lives within 60 miles of the US border? Think about that for a sec. What are we? Like, it's a beautiful country. Look, I love our country, but it's pretty hard to say that a ribbon has the same staying power as a block of European hundreds of years, you know, thousands of years old versus Canada that's a couple hundred years old. All of these things go into an international evaluation of, should I continue to lending my money to Canada to fund their, uh, their deficit? All it takes is a few big pension funds to say, Thanks, Canada. I've just realized on a map that I can find you and I'm not that, it's like a analyzing a company, right? So Canada's small. The best thing we have going for us is our proximity to the US. The worst thing we have going for us is our leadership who are a bunch of pumpkins who have say things like monetary policy. Forgive me, monetary policy means nothing to me. Oh, good on you, sir. I mean, that's just dumb stuff. And that's what our prime minister said. Did you have something else, Christian? No, I mean, I think that this is a fascinating conversation. Um, I think that Bitcoin as sovereign debt insurance is going to change uh, borders. And, uh, you know, the nations that we have gotten used to today may not be uh, the way that we organize borders in the world uh, in the future. But I definitely think that you know, Bitcoin's hardness, it's gonna, it's gonna still be there exactly how we, we expect it to be. So um, it's gonna be interesting to see how all this plays out. I think there's a great place to kind of wrap this one up. We, we touched on both the Evergrande situation, your article on that, as well as your overarching like kind of thesis on how to evaluate Bitcoin based on, um, you know, 
the nation state level debt. Um, Greg, want to give you a last word before we wrap it up. Watch, uh, watch Central America. Watch the potential flippening of the importance on the global pecking order of Central American nations who adopt the Bitcoin legal tender. And it'll happen quickly. And the countries that don't embrace it may not be the G7 countries of the future. I would love Canada to actually do some homework on Bitcoin and understand how it could change the economics of a natural resource rich nation like Canada. Uh, it takes time, but I am talking to, amongst others, Pierre Poiliev, who is a conservative minister who has come out in support of Bitcoin. And this is important. It's important for my kids. It's important for my love of the country of Canada. And it's actually important to uh, counter the narrative where we don't care about monetary policy because that's not how you run a company and it's not how you run a country. So I guess the thing I would say is this, and it's my last uh, pitch for the article I just wrote for Bitcoin Magazine. I ran through the economics of the debt only in the United States and how much Bitcoin should be worth if only we considered what insurance on the US was compared to its unfunded funded and unfunded obligations. And Bitcoin should be trading for 1.3 to 1.9 trillion US dollars today based on only America. So first of all, it's trading for about a trillion. So it's cheap compared to only the insurance on America. And the other way to look at it is you're getting insurance on America plus you're getting all the other countries in the world that will fail before America will, you're getting that insurance for free. My God, I don't know how else to lay this out for people, how cheap Bitcoin is as a perfect insurance policy against idiot politicians and modern monetary theorists like Stephanie Kelton, who think that deficits are a myth. Buy her book and also buy Bitcoin. Because one of them's wrong, okay? And I'm predicting it's her book. She's never sat in a risk chair. She's a dangerous person for anybody who's ever traded risk and has to manage defaults. Wow. Very, very strong ending. And uh, I, too, believe that Bitcoin is the perfect hedge uh, of all the fiat bullshit, but you have done a much better job of quantifying that into something that is a lot more tangible for uh, the serious investors out there. Greg, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for spreading your knowledge on Bitcoin Magazine at FedWatch um, and across the Bitcoin and economic universe. Uh, every time, you know, Every time I am online, I'm seeing you shouting and screaming and trying to get people's attention to let them snap back to some sanity here. And I think you're one of the best voices out there. So I really appreciate you being a part of what we're trying to do. Where can people find you if they want to get a lot more Greg Foss? Sure. Uh, Twitter seems to be some, uh, well, I know it's a beautiful platform that I've just uh, discovered. Uh, I want to say one thing too, uh, Christian and Ansel, thanks for having me. But most importantly, I, I want to tell people I do yell a lot. But when I worked on a trading floor, uh, one of my trading partners actually got a t-shirt made up for me. And it said, I yell because I care. 
And I, I was very proud to get that t-shirt because I actually do care. And then there's sometimes when I just can't take it anymore. And I do go off on the Steve Hankies of the world for being so conflicted. But I'm afraid I have to do that because I do have three kids that are being impacted by his uh, disingenuous uh, behavior sometimes. So you guys can find me on Twitter. Uh, if I swear at Hanky too much, people sometimes call out and say, come on, Greg, take it easy on the guy. They actually do. And oh, I'm going to unfollow you because you're acting like a child. That's okay. Like I am screaming because I care because I don't think too many other people are doing the true mathematics of it. And you can write a book about the deficit myth. If you've never sat in a chair and managed money when the world is unraveling, my opinion, you don't have a lot of credibility to write a book about a myth. Let me tell you, 2009 was a coming of age of the financial system being literally days away from collapse. There's very few people that really, really understand that. So thanks, guys. Keep doing what you're doing. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to be a participant and a uh, and and. Uh, contributor to the to the knowledge that you guys are uh, are putting out there amazing amazing well again thank you so much for the passion and uh to all the bitcoiners out there you can find me at ck underscore snarks you can find ansel who's also doing amazing work on bitcoin magazine and in the greater bitcoin ecosystem at ansel lindner um and yeah make sure to subscribe make sure to give us those five-star reviews uh, and uh, keep an eye out for all the amazing work that we're hosting on our Bitcoin only platform. And a shout Peace. out to the deep, the, a shout out to the deep dive uh, that uh, Dylan LeClaire is, uh, is producing on a daily basis. Uh, there's two out of five days of the week that I'm just blown away by his, uh, his ability to uh, actually distill things down into a very understandable, uh, you know, uh, context. And he's, there's even uh, toxic Bitcoin maxis that call me out and say, will you stop promoting these young guns? And I'm like, I got to promote them because they're telling the truth. That's all I want people to do is tell the truth. So thanks again, boys. We'll talk to you soon. Hell yeah. Shout out to the deep dive. Sub to that. Peace. Bye guys.